Um, when my youngest son, who is now in college, was four years old, we took the family to go to see the movies, and on the big screen, we wanted to see the movie The Chronicles of Narnia. And my son, Ethan, who was four at the time, sitting next to me, kept asking me, tapping my leg, Daddy, Daddy, where's the lion? Where's the lion, Daddy? And I was like, shh, it's okay, just wait, the lion's coming. Now, he kept asking because they kept talking about Aslan throughout the movie, but he never showed up. And so, Daddy, where's the lion? Where's the lion? And he doesn't appear, of course, until about halfway through the film. And as the anticipation is building... Ethan's getting more and more excited. And finally, Aslan does come on the scene. And Ethan's eyes are big and wide with wonder. He's like, oh, there's the lion. And then, of course, if you have read the book or seen the movie, spoiler warning, um, shortly after he appears, he makes a secret deal with the White Witch to trade his life for Edmund's life. Edmund was a traitor. But Aslan agreed to make the deal and, and trade his life for Edmund's life. And so in so doing, the white witch takes him with her people, binds him to the stone table, shaves him, and stabs him with a dagger. And during that whole scene, from the shaving to the stabbing to the death of Aslan my four-year-old is saying loud enough for others in the theater to hear, no, no, Aslan not die. No, no, Aslan not die. You need to remember, as people who come to church, or if you don't come to church and this is your first time, welcome, but you need to remember that even what you know about Christianity and Jesus The first disciples, followers, after his death, were much like Ethan. What? No. No. Jesus can't die. So what changed them? What made them willing to suffer? What made them willing to take on oppression? What made them willing to sail the seas to foreign lands to tell about a friend named Jesus. Luke is going to remind us of that in Acts chapter 1. If you turn there with me, I'm going to read the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. It says, "In, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit." Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and intercedes for us, living and active. Would you take your very words and stick them in our hearts that it might shape our lives? that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And we ask this in your powerful name. Amen. So we are starting this new series called Sent, the acts that change the world. There's a graphic for that. You'll be seeing this. This is the new series that we're starting in the book of Acts. Um, And as we start the series about Sent, the acts that change the world, and Acts refers to the book of Acts there. You know, that's very creative of us, right? Um... As we do this, it's really important that we first understand this. We need to first understand the act that changed the world. And that's where Luke starts us. And so that act is what Luke's gospel is about. Luke writes a gospel telling about the act that changed the world of Jesus coming in the flesh, his life, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. In Luke's book of Acts, that is the second part of his gospel, goes on from there. But before we can go on from there, we've got to make sure we get the first part. And that's why Luke recaps that right here in chapter 1 of Acts. And so, let me just show you where he does it. Notice in verse 3, right away, he says, um, After a suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, let me ask you a question here. Why? Why does Luke put that in here for us? Why, especially, did they need many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days? Because you have to remember they were like Ethan. Like, no, he can't be dead. And it's just Really weird to think that somebody that was dead after three days gets out of their tomb and walks and is alive again. And you and I would doubt too. And so they, Jesus appears to them over a long period of time in many different ways. And Paul tells us to over 500 people convincing them he is indeed resurrected from the dead. He is alive in body, in the flesh. Not just a ghost, some mysterious figure. Now, some of you may find that very hard to believe. And I think that's actually a good thing. Because it's not normal, right? I mean, yeah, it should be hard to believe in one sense. But that's what the accounts are telling us. And if you're new to Christianity, if you're curious about this Jesus thing and church, then one of the things I want you to try to get with me is to understand that the resurrection, as weird as that may sound to you, is actually the most plausible explanation for what's going to happen in the book of Acts. And that's why Luke starts with it. 
Now, I don't have time to go through all of that in great length today, but consider these couple of things. Would the disciples, the 12 disciples of Jesus, his followers, plus the others that were around him, which was um, dozens more, scores more, there's 120 gathered in, in Acts chapter 1, we're told. So would all of those people, all those followers of Jesus, risk their lives and be willing to die for something they know is a lie? In other words, if the resurrection weren't true, and they were just making it up, would they be willing to die for that? I mean, would you be willing to die that? I mean, like, it's a fake news story if they're just making it up. And they're like, all right, come on, you're going on the cross too. And like, no, time out, it was fake news. Like, isn't that what you would do if you knew it was not true? But that's not what they do. Eleven of the twelve disciples are actually martyred, killed, for what they believe. And the 12th, John, has to live out the remainder of his days in a small island called Patmos off the coast of Turkey. And he lives there in a cave the rest of his days in exile. But if Jesus was raised to life, then it explains why they're so passionate about doing what they do and what they preach and go tell others. In the movie theater, Ethan was glad when Aslan was alive again. Again, spoiler warning. By the way, if you haven't read this book, get this book and read it to your kids. Or if you're like, I don't read books, then get the film and watch the film. Um, Ethan was glad when Aslan was alive again. You see, the movie's not the same if Aslan's not there, right? I mean, that's like Aslan is the character that is larger than life as C.S. Lewis writes this story, The Lion, The Great Lion, and Ethan wanted him to be alive and present. It's where Christianity is different from every single other religion. As good as other religions might be in some of the values that they want to promote, Christianity is different, and it's different in this way. For example, you can follow Buddha's Eightfold Path of Enlightenment and his teachings without needing Buddha the person. You can just say, yes, I need these teachings. These teachings are helpful. I find them instructive for my life. Okay? but you don't have to have Buddha. But Christianity is personal because you don't just need the teachings of Jesus, you actually need the person of Jesus. You need a personal relationship with him. You actually need Jesus himself. That's why he came back to life. Now let me ask you a question. Do you act... If you're a Christian here today, do you act more like a moralist, a person who just thinks there's a good set of values that you need to do and follow, or more like a Christian, one who follows a guy who's walked out of a grave? Consider this. The vast majority of people who say that they're Christians in the United States today characterize their faith in these ways. Well, I think that it's very good in the teachings of the Bible and of Jesus. They're really helpful for me, and they point me in the right direction. Okay? They do. But that's moralistic behavior modification that you could also do through Stoic principles, some of Buddha's teachings, some other things like that. Right? 
another thing that's commonly said is, well, when I do these things, it just helps me feel better about myself. Like, I just feel better. I feel like I'm a pretty good person. Okay, and that may be true too, but let's recognize that for what it is, apart from Jesus, is simply therapeutic self-talk. I feel better about myself. And who doesn't want to feel better about themselves? And the third thing that they'll say is, well, you know, God is up there, and like Bette Midler said, he's watching from a distance. And I don't know how involved he is with things, but God's there. And I think, you know, just if I, if I get to go to heaven, I think he'll just, he'll just give me the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I've, I've tried. And that's, that's deism. That's a God who doesn't want to be involved and kind of leaves you alone in your life and you're hoping won't really judge you for things and it'll just be kind of nice and gushy and like, okay, let's all get along and come together. That's what the vast majority of those who say they're Christians in the United States believe. If you ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? That's how they describe it. And I'm telling you, while all of those things are good, none of those things are unique to Christianity. You see, because when judgment happens, if there's a God who is just and actually says there is wrong and brokenness in the world and plans to set it right, and that you and I are a part of that problem, that God who is just, when judgment happens and you stand as an imperfect person, hoping before a perfect God to go to the perfect paradise where there is no suffering and there is no evil, you need a way to be what? Perfect. And you can put all the moral codes out there in front of you want to try. And guess what? You will not perfectly keep them. Because what you need is a person who was perfect in your place. You need Jesus who came, who lived the perfect life in the flesh, representing us as humans, died the death that you and I deserve, that gets credited to us as righteousness so that we have the hope of standing before a perfect God with a perfect record of Jesus That's Christianity. And that's unique amongst all the other faith religions in the world. And it's why Luke writes this book. But it's also why he writes the gospel first about that person and what he has done and then says, ah, now that that has happened and now that you get that, here's how this transforms your life. Here's what comes about of this. It comes out of this. You see, you must have Christ before you have true, deep, and lasting character change. You must have the resurrection of new life united to the person of Christ before you have any kind of new reformation project in your life. You need a power outside of yourself and greater than yourself, which we're going to talk more about next week in chapter 2. You and I are not made as people, as brains on like popsicle sticks, which is a phrase that James Smith, the philosopher, uses. We're not primarily brains. We're people. We're body and soul filled with emotions and heart stuff. And he makes the case and the argument, and I think Scripture does too, that says, you know what? You become what you love. Whatever your passions are, those are the things that most drive you more than your brain. You know this to be true because your brain will tell you to do one thing. You're like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. And you're like, I'm going with what I want to do because your passions drive you so often. 
And the reason Luke starts this way, and the reason I'm spending so much time on this is because of this. If you don't get the power of the resurrection of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, your passions will not be touched. There's no person to attach to, and all you'll want is a moral compass to guide your life. And you can get that in all kinds of religions. But if you get this, and your heart is touched, and your life is transformed, and your passions are changed, then God is releasing you to do something truly amazing and powerful. And that's where we come to the second point I want to make to you today. And that is this. What follows the act of the resurrection of Jesus' life, right, is the acts of Christians that change the world. That's this book, the acts that we're going to go through. And there's three things I want to point out about this today pretty quickly. Um, The first is this. They get sent out geographically. Look at verse 6 with me. In verse 6, they say, so uh, Jesus, yeah, are you coming to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he's like, no. And they're like, wait, what? What they have done, as he says in verse 3, to come for the kingdom of God, they said, oh, have you come for the kingdom of Israel? And he says, no, I've come for so much more than that. Let me broaden your horizons. Let me set your eyes further on the horizon, the distance. Let me give you something that without me you would never think of to do nor be able to accomplish. Here it is. It's in verse 8. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to begin in Jerusalem in your own hometown, right? Right where you are in your backyard. Then you're going to go to all Judea. That's your state, the area that they live in. Um, Even to the parts of the state that you might not like. East Judea, West Judea, North Judea, South Judea. I don't know. You just divide them up in Virginia however you want. You're going to all those places. And then you're going to Samaria. Now, Samaria is crossing an ethnic barrier of those who married into other religions like thousands of years earlier. Like, you're going to have to go there too. And to the ends of the earth. Different governments, different cultures, different languages, different ethnic groups. And what is exposed in verse 6 are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel, is their bias. Their bias, understandably so, of their own perception of where they are and where they live. Their own perception of what is to be with Israel. And Jesus exposes that bias and says, that's good, but it's so much more than that. It's bigger than that. What biases does that expose for us? Do you have a similar bias of national pride? A bias toward one ethnic group over another. Because Jesus is sending out beyond comfort zones that requires a change in us. A change not just of direction, but a change of heart. It requires generosity, willing to give yourself away. Let me just show you in Scripture why this is true. Not just from Acts 1, but also from other places. Isaiah 49.6. Let's put that verse on the screen. The prophet Isaiah speaking 800 years before this says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. To restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The same language from Acts 1.8. Jesus is saying, I'm the one because it's too small of a thing just for the nation of Israel, that this is going to the very ends of the earth. And then again in Revelation 5, 9, as John, writing this from that island in Patmos off the coast of Turkey, says, here's the vision he's given of heaven. 
And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased of God persons. Not ideas, not morals, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, the whole of the Bible is God has had a plan to reach the whole world. And it keeps expanding outward, and Jesus is showing that yet again here. And so they are sent out geographically in that way. I was really encouraged this week when some of you contacted us at the church office and said, hey, how can we help Afghan refugees? One person even said, I'd like to house some. How do I do that? And I said, I have no idea, but I got somebody who's going to talk to a chaplain at Fort Lee. Uh, I'll put you in touch with him, and we'll see if we can figure it out. But not only are we sent out geographically, we are sent out with continuity. Like, what? What's continuity? Okay, well, continuity in this. We are part of a larger story. Notice verse 1. Will you put that back on the screen for us? Verse 1 says this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. He began to do and teach? Luke's implication is that for Acts, he's showing you this is the continuation of the story. This is what's going on. And then we see this again, which I'm not going to read in verses 15 and following, but as part of this, in the last half of chapter 1, what the disciples do is say, well, there's only 11 of us, because remember, Judas betrayed Jesus. And they said, well, the scripture says we should fulfill his his place, and so they do, and choose a new one who was with them during the life of Jesus on the earth, witnessed Jesus, saw him after he was resurrected, and they choose a man named Matthias to be that 12th one. Now, why do they do that? It's continuity because what they are doing is they are saying, as Jesus said in Luke 22, that the 12 disciples will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, that's not saying that they're against necessarily, but it's saying there's continuity. What was started with the 12 tribes, Jesus is mirroring and expanding even further with the 12 disciples launching into the world and their mission. You are continuing the work that Jesus began. You are his ambassadors, taking the good news, the news, the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to others. When we read the book of Acts, when you see Jesus teaching and his call to his disciples to go and make disciples, it becomes clear that you are an ambassador. It's not questioned. It's not an option. It's not a course you get to audit. It's not an app you get to add to your phone. Like, no, if you're a follower of me, then you're a follower of me, and you're my disciple, and you're going to make others. Now, how you go about that and how you're gifted and empowered to do that may look differently, but you're all part of that mission. To go and make disciples. And so we are sent out with continuity from what God has been doing since the foundations of the world, carried through Israel, expanded through Jesus, and launched into the future. But we are also sent out, thankfully, resourcefully with great resources. And there's two that are mentioned here. The first is in verses 4 and 5. We can put those verses on the screen as well. He tells them that they're to wait. He says, On one occasion, while eating with them, he gave them this command, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. Wait for the Holy Spirit. One of the resources, the, one of the greatest, maybe the greatest resource you have, is the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you. Not just his ideas, the spirit, the person of God dwelling in you. The third person of the Trinity dwelling in you. Like, whoa, 
Whoa, that's heavy. Yeah, (laughs) and powerful. We'll get to that more next week in Acts chapter 2. But the other thing he says is you have prayer, this connection straight to the throne room of heaven, your red line to heaven. Look at verse 14. It says, did I put that one on there? I don't know if I did. Oh, I did. They all join together constantly in prayer. So they're gathered in the upper room, the 120 of them, and they're just constantly together waiting in prayer. Okay, God, what are you doing? What do you want us to do? Where do you want us to go? What do you think they were praying about? Are they praying praying that like, um, I suggest we pray that Rome lowers the taxes. I suggest, oh, I need a new donkey. I would like a better one. Mine's getting old. Um, I was really hoping to get this new rug for the floor, for the dirt entrance to our house. Maybe, I don't know. I'm speculating. But I got to know that they were at least praying for more than that. It wasn't only that. For sure, I can promise you that. They're praying kingdom prayers that are so much larger than that. Kingdom prayers that are like, God, yes, use us, empower us, take us out, make many people believe in your name that they might follow you. Yes, may your will be done here on earth. Yeah, may your name be holy. Okay, if we're going to the ends of the earth, you're going to have to make it possible because we got no idea how we're going to do that. I mean, we've barely been outside of Judea. Their prayers, I think, were big prayers. Are your prayers big, kingdom minded prayers? Are they the kind of prayers that you cannot accomplish? That you're saying, God, without you, this is impossible. Those are the kind of prayers we should be praying. Maybe take a minute right now and just write down two or three kingdom kind of prayers. Things that are impossible unless God does it. Maybe a friend you want to become a Christian. Maybe a a thing you're battling in your life that you just can't seem to get over and get victory of. Make that your prayer. God, give me victory over this because I can't do it on my own. I mean, think of the Lord's Prayer. We prayed it earlier. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Hallowed be your name. Right? I mean, those are kingdom kind of prayers. Write something down. Put it in your phone, on your to-do list. Write it on your hand like I used to do. Except for when you get sweaty, it goes away. So make sure it lasts longer than that. In your Bible, on a piece of paper. Etch it into your memory if your memory is that good. In the lion, witch, and wardrobe, after Aslan is slain, on that stone table, Susan and Lucy are left in tears. And at dawn the next day, the sun rises, the stone table breaks in two, and Susan and Lucy see Aslan alive again. And they ask, how can it be? And Aslan comes to them and says this, if the witch understood the true meaning of sacrifice, she might have interpreted the deep magic differently. For when a willing victim who has committed no treachery, in other words, is perfect, dies in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack in two, and even death itself will turn backwards. We got a lot to fear these days. Fearing COVID exposes our God of safety. 
that really we just want this therapeutic God of safety, make us happy and nice and comfortable, please, God. The truth is, we're going to all die someday. I hope that's not anytime soon. But someday, you and I are all going to be put in the ground. But if you are a Christian, you are united to the one who walked out from underground. Even death will be turned backwards. And ever after, that shaped Susan, Lucy, Peter, and even Edmund, the traitor, that they went and lived in honor of the king. Will you? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray. Spirit, I pray that you would be powerfully known and felt here today. That you would be real to those who may have wondered if you are real. To those who don't know you or thinking, I'm, just, I'm trying to investigate this Christianity Jesus thing. God, would you make yourself known today that today might be the day they believe. And Lord, would you empower all of us to be followers of you. Not just brains on stick, but hearts moved by your very person who loves us so much you died for us and rose again. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.